0: Out of Austin, Texas, you're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean.
1: Good afternoon. It is day 17 of 100 Days of fallen. We just invite all the people. Boom, boom, boom. Everyone's invited. All the people have been invited. All the people have been invited. All right. So here we are again at chapter 9, subsection, um, special administrative measures. We are reading The Trial of Julian Assange. Why is this important? The Trial of Julian Assange has turned out to be quite an educational text on how I guess governments, particularly Western governments, have found a way to bypass basic human rights in their prison uh, administration, and by bending the rules with what they call arbitrariness. So um, the story of Julian Assange is that he is somebody who published, he's a publisher and journalist by proxy people have used Wikileaks as a source, a strong source, because the documents are authenticated like they're real source documents from governments. And so the information that they convey is usually true and based on what was said and or done by these governments. So uh, in some cases they have been Uh, conveyors of of information that is really really world-changing and proof of things like war crimes and proof of very humiliating things that has gone on in governments among them corruption you know things like that so um, so as a result he became a huge target by the um, Western uh, national security state Um, The Five Eyes, and then their allies in the pursuit of getting him on something to the tune of espionage. I think there were efforts to clarify classified versus not classified documents and documents that were unclassified that were treated as classified after the fact. So there was some of that. So um, we are going to resume our reading of the special administrative measures of the chapter nine and then afterwards if there's anybody who wants to move into a discussion we can. Um, I'll just go ahead and resume. Also I just wanted to, well I'll, I think I'll wait till the, the room is a little bit more populous before I talk about um, the. The bookings at the end of the week. We have Philip Drake here to talk to us about the felonious colonius, and then Peta here to talk to us. Uh, Kathy Guillermo on Friday at 4 p.m. about about Neuralink testing. So, you know, but I'm I'm telling I'm telling the wind right now. <laughs> so I'll just wait till the room has a, a few more bodies, and then I'll I'll let that in. All right, special administrative measures. In his June 2012 asylum request to the Ecuadorian government, Assange explicitly referred to Manning's conditions of detention. The likely charges, the attitude of the U.S. government towards me and the known circumstance of placement in of individuals on comparable charges means that I will, again with certainty, be imprisoned in conditions that mirror those experienced by my alleged co-accused Bradley Manning. As became clear during the September 2020 extradition hearing in London, if sent to the United States, Assange would not only be held in solitary confinement, but would almost certainly be additionally subjected to what are called Special Administrative Measures, or SAMs, both pre-trial and while serving his sentence. This euphemism denotes a particularly restrictive detention regime imposed by the Attorney General, that is the head of the U.S. Department of Justice. SAMs can be ordered before, during, or after a trial. They are not a sanction imposed by the judiciary, but a security measure taken by the government. As such, they are not subject to judicial review and cannot be effectively challenged Challenged by the detainee. SAMs are used against detainees who, in the view of the Attorney General, pose a particular threat to national security, such as suspected or convicted terrorists, spies, or whistleblowers. The main purpose of SAMS is to strictly control an inmate's communication with others inside and outside the prison facility. As we know from numerous reports and witness statements, what this means in practice is near total isolation. Apart from contact with lawyers, only two short phone calls are permitted a month. If and when family visits are permitted, they take place through a thick glass barrier without any physical contact and prisoners remain shackled, chained at the wrists, ankles, and to the ground. All visits require 14 days advance notice and can take several months to coordinate. Apart from that, inmates are in total isolation 24 hours a day. No communication whatsoever is permitted with other inmates And even prison staff do not interact with inmates except for opening the viewing slot during their inspection rounds and delivering meals through the secure meal slot in the door. Recreation is limited to one hour daily and takes place in small indoor cages the same size as their cell without any exercise equipment and often in the middle of the night when other inmates are sleeping. Inside the cell, no newspapers, no radio, no television. Showers only three times per week violations of the rules are punished immediately, the slightest misunderstanding with prison staff can result in a prisoner being handcuffed in his cell for a week, spending in the entire time in, a, in complete darkness, with a bag over his head, or blindfolded. The government's tight grip on the communication of SAMs inmates means that no email contact is permitted and letters may be written only on rare occasions, to approved addressees only, and subject to elaborate censorship procedures that can delay their delivery for several months. One Sam of Abu Hasma al-Mazri, reportedly broke the rules when he wrote a letter asking his son to tell his one-year-old grandson that he loved him. The grandson was not on the list of approved addressees. Psychological services are offered primarily through self-help packages and information provided by video. Participants in group therapy are kept in individual cages and remain shackled during therapy sessions. Lawyers or family members visiting SAMS inmates can be criminally prosecuted if they talk among themselves or with others about the detention conditions they observe. The SAMS regime makes the abuse of power and arbitrariness easy, beyond control, and absolute. As a last means of resistance some detainees go on a hunger strike hoping to obtain a modest form of relief to be allowed to call home twice a month or to read an occasional newspaper but hunger strikes are brutally suppressed by force feeding and often carried out in particularly torturous manner SAMS can be imposed for a period of up to 1 year and are renewable without limit the government can decline to provide any justification after all SAMS are, by definition, a matter of national security. There are convicts who have spent 10 years under this particularly cruel, inhuman, and degrading regime. In my view, there is no question that these conditions of detention violate not only the prohibition of torture under human rights law, but also the prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment under the Eighth Amendment of the US Constitution. In the world of technicalities, of course, SAMs are not a punishment but only administrative measures in the real world however this the term special administrative measures is nothing but another fraudulent label for torture and for a detention regime that dehumanizes not only the detainees but also their tormentors the instructing authority and ultimately any society which tolerates and enables such cruelty in the name of justice press freedom or national security this is the question On 15 October 2019, I participated in a panel discussion at Columbia University in New York. It was entitled, Press Freedom, National Security, and Whistleblowers, from Julian Assange to the White House. The room was packed, with some people standing or sitting on the floor. In the audience was James Goodale, who had represented the New York Times in the Pentagon Papers, litigation during the Vietnam War and whose interview on the Assange case had been an important eye-opener for me. During the discussion, the 86-year-old stood up and took the floor. Is Assange entitled to the full protection of the freedom of the press? Goodale answered passionately in the affirmative. If the US government wanted to prosecute Assange under the Espionage Act, he said, it would first have to prove that his publications had actually posed a clear and imminent threat to national security. It would seem that such proof would create a high bar for the government to jump, particularly when the government has never stated once whether there has been a damage to anyone as a consequence of Assange's publication. It has, of course, said such publication caused general damage to national security, but has not particularized any such harm to anyone such as, for example, its Afghanistan sources. The government has had 10 years to come up with evidence that shows damage to national security, but has not. Indeed, the claim that Assange's publications have caused serious harms to U.S. national security, endangered American soldiers, and exposed local informants to acts of revenge by the enemy is one of the earliest and least scrutinized myths. On 30th July, 2010, just after the publication of the Afghan War Diary, U.S. Chief of Staff Mike Mullen stated, Mr. Assange can say whatever he likes about the greater good he thinks and his source are doing. Let me read that again. Mr. Assange can say whatever he likes about the greater good he thinks he and his source are doing, but the truth is they might already have their hands the blood of some young soldier or that of an Afghan family. Strikingly, the general seemed to be much less concerned about the blood on the hands of his own soldiers who, in the collateral murder video, massacred wounded civilians and their rescuers as well as the press. Nor did it seem to occur to him that war crimes, such as the one that had destroyed the countless Afghan and Iraqi families, driven embittered civilians into the arms of terrorist groups and provoked acts of revenge against U.S. personnel and civilians. The short-sightedness of the self-righteous is their greatest weakness. Similarly, U.S. Defense Secretary Robert Gates told Senator Carl Levin in a letter of 16 August 2010, the documents do contain the names of cooperative Afghan nationals and the Department of Defense takes very seriously the Taliban threats recently discussed in the press. We consider this risk as likely to cause significant harm or damage to to the national security interests of the United States. However, he acknowledged that the review to date has not revealed any sensitive intelligence sources and methods comprised by this disclosure. Three years later, the situation remained unchanged. At Manning's trial in July of 2013, Brigadier General Robert Carr, a senior counterintelligence officer who headed the information review task force, that investigated the impact of WikiLeaks disclosures on behalf of the United States Department of Defense, told the court that they had uncovered no specific examples of anyone who had lost their life as a consequence of these publications. Before Assange, no one had ever been charged under the Espionage Act merely for publishing sensitive documents. What then would a conviction of Assange mean for the future of investigative journalism? Without a doubt, it would set a precedent by which any journalist publishing leaked material on a national security and defense policy issue could face similar charges. If it were not for the establishment of a judicial precedent for the purpose of intimidating investigative journalism, the aggressive prosecution of Assange would make no sense at all. What is at stake, therefore, are not just the personal rights of Assange, but nothing less than the continued ability of the press as the fourth estate to inform and empower the people and thereby ensue sorry ensure democratic oversight of governments. Let me see if there's anybody with me. We've got Demetrio with us and that is it. So in an interview with Dr. Spiegel, Wikileaks editor Kristen Hraftsman therefore rightly spoke of a war on journalism. Reporters Without Borders called the charges against Assange dangerous precedents for journalists, whistleblowers, and other journalistic sources. Even the former Assistant Attorney General for National Security, Kenneth Weinstein, said in 2010 at a U.S. congressional hearing, if WikiLeaks can be prosecuted for espionage for these leaks, there is no legal or logical reason why a similar prosecution could not lie against all of the mainstream news organizations that routinely receive and publish protected national defense information. This is no small problem for those who want to see Assange indicted and convicted. Not surprisingly, therefore, they do everything in their power to distinguish WikiLeaks from traditional news organizations and prevent the equation of Assange's work with journalism. Ultimately, however, the motive behind the aggressive persecution of Assange is always the same, fear. Fear of the WikiLeaks methodology and its proliferation, fear of transparency, truth, and new revelations, fear of democratic control and accountability, and above all, fear of losing power. In the words of Leon Panetta, former CIA Chief and U.S. Secretary of Defense, in an interview with ARD all you can do is hope that you can ultimately take action against those who were involved in revealing that information so that you could send a message to others to not do the same thing. To achieve this goal of deterrence, new legal contortions are being constantly attempted. Thus, during a speech at the Center for Strategic and International Studies on 13 April 2017, Shortly after the Vault 7 leak had exposed the CIA's worldwide hacking activities, then CIA director Mike Pompeo claimed that WikiLeaks was a non-state hostile intelligence service, that Assange as a foreigner was not entitled to the protection of the press freedom guarantees of the US Constitution. That's how simple it was in Mike Pompeo's world. From a legal perspective, however, interpreting the US Constitution, fortunately, is not up to the director of the CIA, but to the Supreme Court. But the CIA seems to care as little about the Constitution as it does about the international legal obligations of the United States. These international obligations also include respecting and ensuring freedom of expression which can be restricted only by law and only for compelling reasons, especially to protect national security. As Goodale had correctly noted, therefore, Everything hinges on whether Assange and WikiLeaks actually endangered the national security of the United States, and not just its international reputation and the impunity of its leaders for war crimes, torture, and corruption. So far, the U.S. authorities have been unable to provide any evidence for this claim. Indeed, correctly understood, press freedom and national security are not contradictory but symbiotic, and official secrecy is their their common enemy All right so we're 18 minutes in I'm going to take a brief break I'm going to pre- I'm going to play something for you uh-huh.
0: just to pass the time
1: enough to get me in a drink here okay I think we're gonna go ahead and move to the next chapter just needed to get a little something to drink so we're moving into part three fighting for the truth try inviting a few more people grateful for the people who are here with me and that's Demetrio pretty good listener try again try try again so this is part three fighting for the truth and we move to chapter 10 governmental denial of reality this should be interesting in the summer of 2019 my office started receiving the responses to the official letters I had sent on 27 sorry 27th and 28th May to the governments of the United Kingdom the United States Sweden and Ecuador. Australia and, a few months later, Germany, also reacted to my conclusions, although I had not formally contacted either of these two states in connection with the Assange case. Remarkably, despite significant differences in terms of attitude and content, the reactions of all six governments had one common denominator, the denial of reality. The United Kingdom demonstrated uh, indifference. Sweden, Ecuador, and the United States all replied within the standard deadline of 60 days, but only the British government, which which had Assange in its power, and from which I had therefore demanded the most urgent measures, had made abundantly clear that I was in no hurry to respond. Their letter of reply was not sent until 7 October 2019, almost exactly five months after my visit to Assange as if to demonstrate the the indifference of an overconfident world power. The British response was particularly concise and dispensed with all diplomatic courtesies. Without preamble, the letter wrapped out its points, Dear Mr. Meltzer, the government rejects any allegation that Julian Assange has been subjected to torture in any form as a result of actions by the UK government. The UK government does not participate in, solicit, encourage or condone the use of torture For any purpose. The United Kingdom does not accept that Mr. Assange has ever arbitrarily been detained. He was free to leave the Ecuadorian embassy at any time. Moreover, Mr. Assange has, has been convicted under English law of failing to surrender to custody following due legal process. Judges in the UK are completely impartial and independent from government. Mr. Assange did not appeal his conviction and has withdrawn his appeal against his sentence. Yours sincerely, XX. End of message. No response to the urgent concerns expressed by my medical team about Assange's health. No investigation into British involvement in years of judicial arbitrariness, intimidation, isolation, and humiliation. Sorry, T. No action to assure Assange would get adequate access to his lawyers and legal documents. No comment on the risk of serious human rights violations in the event of extradition to the United States. And last but not least, no assurances of the highest consideration or similar concluding phrase in diplomatic parlance, the equivalent of a slap in the face. The British government clearly had no intention of answering a mere UN special rapporteur had nothing to do with me personally. In fact, whenever other UN experts had reached conclusions deviating from the British government's complacent self-perception, their reaction had been the same. Whether Raquel Rolnick's critical 2013 report on the right to adequate housing in the United Kingdom, the WGAD's 2015 conclusions on Assange's arbitrary deprivation of liberty in the Ecuadorian embassy, Philip Alston, Disconcerting 2019 report on extreme poverty in the United Kingdom or now my own concerns regarding the the persecution and ill treatment of Assange. Every time the British government had at first voluntarily engaged with the valuation process, then flatly dismissed the inconvenient findings and aggressively accused the investigating UN expert of partisanship, inflammatory remarks and political motivations. Clearly, government bent on denying uncomfortable realities would be a difficult interlocutor for constructive dialogue based on facts. Sweden, bureaucratic evasiveness. Sweden too had difficulties in concealing its indignation, but at least it made a show of maintaining diplomatic countenance. In my official letter to the government, I had transmitted credible allegations of serious due process violations on the part of the Swedish Prosecution Authority. In any functioning system of democratic checks and balances this type of allegation letter transmitted by a mandated UN expert should have automatically triggered a formal investigation by the parliamentary ombudsman for the judiciary or a similar independent oversight body. But this obviously was not what the Swedish government had in mind because that would have raised too many inconvenient questions. Instead, the government reminded me of the constitutional independence of the judiciary, including the prosecution authority, and explained that the government could not interfere with an ongoing criminal investigation. The undersigned ambassador seemed rather unconvinced himself, or else he would not have found it necessary to repeat the same argument four times on only three pages. In my experience, The claim that the executive branch cannot interfere with ongoing judicial proceedings is one of the most common excuses I receive from democratic governments when I confront them with allegations of torture or ill-treatment and remind them of their obligation to investigate, punish, and redress any violations that may have occurred and to prevent their reoccurrence. All these obligations are binding on the state as a whole and thus on all three branches of government. In practice, it is not only the security forces and secret services subordinate to the executive branch that are responsible for torture and ill-treatment, but also the judicial and investigative authorities. The spectrum ranges from interrogational coercion or suppression of statements to the execution of corporal punishment and death sentences to deliberate judicial arbitrariness and denial of justice, such as in the case of Julian Assange. As a matter of diplomatic protocol, however, I have I have to address my official communications to the Minister of Foreign Affairs of the state in question, even if the abuse is alleged to have been committed by officials of the judiciary. It is then up to the Foreign Ministry to forward my allegation letter, to the appropriate National Oversight Body to ensure that the investigations required by international law are conducted and that my queries are satisfactorily answered. If I were prevented from addressing abuse by investigative and judicial authorities during a pending investigation, my mandate would really be reduced to a toothless tiger with very limited practical relevance, but then that outcome is precisely what many states would not be too unhappy to see materialized. The Swedish letter also pointed out that the government does not agree with the WGAD's opinion and its conclusion that Sweden has violated international law. In fact, Mr. Assange remained at the Ecuadorian Embassy and the Swedish authorities have no control over his decision to do so. Mr. Assange was free to leave the embassy at any time. He cannot be considered to have been deprived of his liberty while at the embassy due to any decision or action taken by the Swedish authorities. Of course, with a requisite dose of cynicism, the same could be said for any other politically persecuted asylum seeker. In the real world, whether someone is free to leave, the protection of their political asylum does not depend on whether their presence in the place of asylum is voluntary, but on whether there is a real risk that they will be exposed to serious violations of their human rights once they leave that place. As Assange has correctly predicted, and as he has become abundantly clear, or and has become abundantly clear since his arrest on 11 April 2019, his fears have been well-founded all along. In its response, governments described the possibility of Assange's extradition from Sweden to the United States as strictly hypothetical. Presumably just as hypothetical as the po- po- possibility sorry of a US extradition request was said to be by the British government when it responded to my initial visit request on 10 April 2019. Less than 24 hours before it ordered Assange's arrest in the Ecuadorian embassy and announced that the United States had formally requested his extradition, a more detailed response to my queries or the initiation of an investigation was not considered necessary by the Swedish government. Overall the message coming from Stockholm very much resembled the one I would receive from London. No wrongdoing, no culpable omissions, no inconsistencies, complete denial of an unpleasant reality. Ecuador, No, no, and no. Like the British, the Ecuadorian government had difficulties maintaining diplomatic form and composure, but in an inverse fashion. In terms of word count, the missive from Quito far exceeded those sent by those other three governments, and can only be described as a verbal outburst. The government spotted accusations even where I had not even voiced them at all. It is regrettable that you refer to the diplomatic asylum gra- granted to Mr. Julian Assange as, as a confinement, a term that denotes the confinement of a person in a closed environment, depriving him of his liberty. In this regard, we would like to remind you that on 19 June of 2012, Mr. Assange entered the Embassy of Ecuador in London voluntarily of his own accord, and without any coercion of any kind. I had never claimed otherwise. Any politically persecuted person seeks asylum voluntarily. However, if the place of his asylum measures are only a few square meters, which he cannot leave without exposing himself to the risk of serious human rights violations, then a situation unquestionably amounts to deprivation of liberty. As a matter of law, therefore, Assange was indeed confined to the, the Ecuadorian embassy, albeit not by the Ecuadorian government but through a threat scenario created by the Swedish, British, and, in the background, American authorities. What I had criticized in my letter to Ecuador was not Assange's confinement by other states, but his targeted isolation, defamation, and humiliation by the Ecuadorian authorities, and the summary termination of his citizenship, and asylum in violation of due process, and the prohibition of refoulement. The main responses of the Ecuadorian government, and most notably their justification for his expulsion, have already been discussed in detail. The the progressively derailed tone of their letters showed me that I had hit a nerve. Page after page, their personal attacks increased. You, Mr. Rapporteur, and your assistants are obviously free to sympathize with Mr. Assange, but your opinions on the case distort the facts, and you promote... ...value judgments that compromise your your independence as a Special Rapporteur. Or, your subjectivity is astonishing, Mr. Rapporteur. Or, zero torture, Mr. Rapporteur. All of this you already know because we informed you before, Mr. Special Rapporteur. Why then ask us again? Or, we repeat it again, but we are discouraged in doing so because we don't know this is the time that you will be lucky enough to have read what we wrote. And finally... There is also new content in your letter that you have not addressed before, and it is still expresses as an obvious prejudice against the Ecuadorian state when you merely repeated what Mr. Assange's lawyers and supporters say without any supporting evidence. Ha. Ah. In the course of my work, I have rarely received official responses as wordy as this one, but which still left all of my inquiries my queries unanswered. Unbelievable. USA America does not torture. The reply of the United States government, dated 16th July 2019, included a short cover letter and a one page sub- substantive response. In my letter, I had expressed grave concern at what I described as a sustained and unrestrained campaign of public mobbing, intimidation, and defamation against Mr. Assange, consisting of a constant stream of public statements not only by the mass media but and influential private individuals but also by current or former political figures and senior officials of various branches of government in this regard the government was empathetic sorry emphatic the united states rejects the pre- proposition that the types of public statements listed in your letter constitute cruel inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment much less torture as defined by the Convention Against Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman, or Degrading Treatment, or Punishment cat. Further, the United States is deeply concerned by the suggestion that independent reporting or other commentary and discourse on public figures could amount to torture or cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment. Such a position by the Special Rapporteur has dangerous implications. For freedom of expression democracy and rule of law the cynicism of this rationale is striking on the one hand the US government justifying the justifies the unrestrained defamation humiliation and intimidation of Assange based on freedom of expression but when Assange reveals evidence of war crimes torture and corruption then freedom of expression suddenly ceases to apply and he is threatened with 175 years in prison. Furthermore, in the view of the United States government, the notoriously inhumane conditions of detention in a U.S. high-security prison have nothing to do with torture or ill treatment. The United States categorically rejects the claims in your letters that the United States will torture or otherwise mistreat Mr. Assange if he is extradited to the United States to face criminal prosecution. Chelsea Manning has a very different story to tell, and she is not the only one. The failure of the United States to prosecute and punish its own torturers, its excessive use of violence, restraints, and isolation against detainees of all kinds, its practice of extorting confessions and testimony through coercive detention, and threats of draconian sanctions, and the notorious overcrowding of American detention facilities, reflect a remarkable discrepancy between governmental self-perception and the reality on the ground. Okay, we're 36 minutes in. I'll leave it up to you. We can read the Australian entry if you want. But I'll leave it up to you guys. Send up an emoji if you'd like for me to continue. If not, then we will wrap it up and we'll resume our reading tomorrow of Chapter 10, The Trial of Julian Assange, A Story of Persecution in Australia, The Glaring Absentee. No emojis. Okay, that's where we're gonna wrap. So thank you for joining us. We had Charlie, Demetrio, and Khadija. I hope I got that right. Did anybody want to jump up and say anything before we leave? No comments. So I got a picture from Khadija. It's a very pretty picture. We will see you tomorrow at around this time. Uh, We will be continuing with our reading at that time. Um, I just wanted to mention that at the end of the week, we have an interview with a um, Constitution Party presidential candidate, and we are going to talk about the colonias in South Texas in detail. So I don't think that this will be necessarily a short interview, but it will be a very interesting one. So if you have little to no uh, exposure to what's going on at the U.S.-Mexican border, it's not all people crossing the Rio Grande River into uh, into Eagle Pass. There's a lot more going on down there, and you're going to hear a lot more about it and why this man chose to run for president of all offices. So, um, and then on Friday we have a special treat with PETA's uh, vice one of their vice presidents is going to speak to us about uh, brain testing on animals and how that might. Uh, Apply to the new Neuralink technology that's going to be um, showed and told upon by Mr. Elon Musk at the end of the month. So, very good stuff. Thursday and Friday. Hope you will tune in. Until then, we'll see you next time, which will be tomorrow, right around this time.
0: Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access unsanctioned citizen podcast archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio podcasts, and call-in. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com.